Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today I'm joined by Mark Johnson, the author of the book Wasted and founder of User Voice, and by Ian Miller, drug science's very own expert by experience. We're going to take a look at addiction, what are the causes, the variables, the struggles, and hopefully the way out. Okay, now let's kick off with you, Mark. Tell us about yourself uh, and about why you set up User Voice. Yeah, I've had sort of issues with addiction from as early as I can remember. It's a very well-documented story of um, I first tried heroin at eight years old and um, carried on changing how I feel by using various chemicals. I suppose my, uh, my home life situation made it easier for me to want to escape and stuff. And um, I spiralled into addiction, ending up in 2000, living on the streets of the West End, addicted to crack and heroin, intravenous crack and heroin. Uh, so I've been clean for 19 years. OK, we'll come back to that in a minute, then, how you got clean. But that's a, a remarkable story. I'm glad you're still here. Yeah, I bet <laughs> you are too. too. Yeah. And Ian, what's an expert by experience, then? It's lived experience. I guess when I was going through my teens, I was um, a rebel. And the more I saw Nancy Reagan and people sort of like that saying, drugs are bad for you, it made me more and more curious. And that was it. I was hooked with drugs and the whole what they do to people and the effects they have. OK, but the interesting contrast is that you yourself didn't become very dependent, unlike Mark, is that right? Yeah, that's true. I moved into a place in Bristol where I live with four heroin addicts. The first night someone OD'd. I put my scout training into operation. Um, I've had periods where I was taking a lot of drugs for a long time, but um, I always felt I could walk away any time I wanted, so I did. So, Mark, let's get back to you then. So when did you realise you were addicted? I think addiction, probably 17, 18, where it was completely out of control and, you know, completely dependent 24-7. Everybody had a complete allergic reaction to me. So tell us about what that's like, because most people won't have any understanding. Um, it's a very confusing um, experience, really, because um, there's kind of like bits missing in the thinking, the feeling, uh, relationships. You're doing things to people that you don't want to do, but you you have to do them because you've almost developed like a predatory brain of needing to find the fix. And that takes kind of um, precedent over everything. You had no insight at the time, but now with hindsight you can see how... Oh, completely, yeah. yeah. And people say, you know, oh, you're responsible and everybody's got a choice and all this sort of stuff, but I would disagree probably up until the age of 29, 30, mm. when I was in residential treatment and I really understood the difference between right and wrong and, and sort of uh, and realised that I'd been in this moral confusion most of my childhood and adolescent life. But you said you started at eight, so that's extraordinarily, yeah. I mean, what, what, what was that about? Well, I, I mean, in my, where I grew up, it was easier to be outside the front door than in it. And there's a real logical progression. If there's no love support from family and it's unsafe, then you go outside and outside, you come into contact with the peer group and then somebody gives you something, i.e. getting pissed. Mm. And um, you actually go, oh, 
I found something here that I don't get in the family environment with the talking about how I feel and think and well you're using chemicals to replace the absence of uh, of love and affection in your home and it's that simple for me you know uh, it was that it was that simple in hindsight I've been clean 19 years now and uh, of sort of probably part of being clean is re- reflecting daily and having to analyze how I think and feel and making sure I'm looking after myself to maintain sort of the quality of life I've got today but on on reflection there I don't believe that that my environment was the thing that caused me to be an addict I think it was probably already there well, you were sort of born with it. I believe so. And, I, and what makes me believe that is I've got my brother's in recovery in America. He's only just got in after lots of episodes with sort of um, messy episodes in the hospitalizations and stuff. My younger sister's been seven years in recovery. My son, who's 23, has been in recovery for four years. Uh, my dad's an alcoholic. I don't know whether he's alive or dead. And I've got this long line of alcohol mm. and addicts in my family. Mm-hmm. Like a disproportionate amount yeah, of people. Well, it, it does run in families, and there clearly is evidence. In part, it's genetic, and part, yeah. it's social. Yeah, but it's uh, it doesn't relate to social class or anything. I no. I uh, was uh, many years ago treating a a doctor, a consultant who was severely addicted to opiates, and uh, turned out his you know his mother was also a doctor, and she was an alcoholic, and his father was also a doctor, and he was a heroin addict. It doesn't respect sort of class or wealth or income. I mean, once people start to use drugs to deal with problems and they've got that vulnerability, they yeah. they can kind of get sucked in. But then there's Ian, you know, who's been with a lot of drug users and saved lives and used drugs himself, uh, but hasn't become addicted. So why do you think you're different? Obviously, I've spent a long time thinking about this. Mm. I've watched so many friends fall by the wayside over the years. Partially... I used to love betting on sport, and so drugs wasn't always my top priority. And I think that was a sort of saving factor. But also, I found that most people who seem to get addicted to drugs have got a pain inside that they're trying to mask or suppress, and they usually despise themselves. And I, I didn't have that. Um, when I sort of looked at my friends and why they were in such a mess, there was always a core problem that nobody was helping them deal with it you know everyone was offering to help them come off the drugs take methadone take it do this do that but nobody was actually trying to treat the problem the initial mm. problem one of the most common sort of challenges we have when we're working in, in, in this field is people talking about the concept of addiction i mean there are people who want to deny it exists and there are other people who think it's stigmatizing I quite like the term because I think it's actually a serious term and it tells people how, how serious the problem is. But uh, what, what do you think, Mark? Did you use that term about yourself? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'm in um, absence-based recovery, mm-hmm. I think it's called. I find it very politically charged, but as I'm getting more mature in my absence-based recovery, I've witnessed people like Ian and um, just finding phenomenal really you know what i mean i don't understand his he's got a different brain than i have completely you know but we we um we i think we sort of uh have respect for one another for the difference when i give lectures on this i uh talking to usually the doctors and i i say yeah uh, okay hands up who drinks and usually it's you know, two-thirds and i say hands up how many of you are alcoholics and no one's yet put their hand up Mm. And yet we know that you know about ten to fifteen percent of people who drink you know are dependent they're alcoholic, yep. and that tells you a really important thing. So I say to them, okay, so that proves it's not the drug. 
Mm. It's the drug plus the person. Yep. Because you guys are all, girls are obviously capable of using it without becoming dependent. So there's clearly an individual variation, isn't there? Yeah. I lived in the Virgin Islands for a while and um, everybody there had drinks. I mean, ridiculous amount. And most of them are alcoholics, but it doesn't affect their lives. They still go to work, they still mm. have a family, they, but they would never admit to being alcoholics. But the fact that they were in my bar every single day after work would suggest to me that, nah, you've got questions mm-hmm. to answer. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point because that also gets to this discussion about whether it's, it's a physical thing or whether it's a psychological thing. You will presumably, Mark, had physical. Yeah, mine's both. Mine's, mine's twofold. It's mental and physical. Uh, and I agree with that uh, philosophy. I've, I got clean and probably into the life that I've got now through a recovery program that promotes that concept and why that is is when I don't look after myself my mind starts obsessing it's not about drink or drugs anymore it Mm. can be about cleaning I've had episodes in my recovery of shoplifting sexual conduct uh, lying you name work It just manifests itself everywhere. You mean you sort of get into extremes? Whatever, when you start doing something, yeah, you find that you, yeah. you've got to keep on doing yeah. it. Yeah, and in, as I know now, I know a lot of treatment providers and you know being around it and stuff. Is there's a lot of um, treatment centres or services that are geared up for the drink or drugs or you know the the actual sort of compound, but not the actual longer term effects or dealing with the things that's actually post addressing the addiction. So sexual conduct and stuff for people. Depression that actually is, is uncovered through stopping drug yeah. use, and which also often drives people back. I mean, that's the yeah. that's the problem with an approach which just says just get off, yeah. because getting off is relatively straightforward, but staying off is very very difficult yeah. for all sorts of reasons. Addiction comes with behaviours and the situation and the rituals and just being in that sort of environment that in itself is what people find addictive too. It's not even just the fact that they're physically addicted to heroin. No. Mm or booze or anything because I mean well, their whole life and friends and family are they're often all entwined with the behaviours and, yeah. and, and, and the paraphernalia and it's, it's very hard to escape and then you get craving I mean did you, did you experience craving? Oh extreme yeah and I think the, the, where I get my identity from as an addict or an addict in recovery whichever you want to you know split in the house or thing it, it's born out of my experience of repeatedly relapsing mm. <laughs> of trying every single method under the sun than the end one, which was I met somebody who'd got clean, a peer, an expert by experience, Mm -hmm. who told me what I've got to do to not take drugs again. And that was to be honest. And he said the prerequisite Mm. to change is Mm. self-honesty. And that's the one thing that in my childhood, adolescence, and everybody, social workers, teachers, psychologists, everybody, nobody had ever told me that I was in control and I was responsible for where I was. Uh, they all said that I was a victim of circumstance, you know, because my dad was and the mm. environment that I was in and all this pity stuff. And they actually just, what they call, stuck it on me, yeah, and said, actually, it's you. And if you can't get honest, you can't change. And there are people that can't get honest, you know, psychopaths, etc., or, you know, like some people with, like, psychological illnesses and stuff, yep. and they can't. And I thought, shit, I can't get honest. But then I believe that I got honest enough to be able to not take, mm. take drugs and start to talk about how I felt. So if mm. I was craving, I would say, guys, I'm craving. <laughs> 
and it wouldn't be internalized to the point that I'd wind myself up obsessed to the point that I'd just go You'd and have to use go again. Just do yeah. something. I'd just like to say, my dad was an alcoholic and he ruined two marriages and then he eventually gave up and his father-in-law owned a pub. And the problem with my dad was his whole life was sort of around the pub. All his mates drank, all his, everyone he knew owned a pub. So my dad went to work in his father-in-law's pub whilst recovering from alcoholism. He mm. stayed dry for 27 years. And then he suddenly said, I want to drink again. And obviously we all went, ooh. And now he has two pints of bitter shandy every day and he goes to the pub with his friends and he now has got his life back. As you get older, most people tend to not have the same urges and drives and energy as they get older. And, and, and the parts of the brain which we think underpin things like craving, you know, they gradually become less effective, less driven. I mean, I don't know if you've found that yourself. I could only refer to smoking yep. in my older age, you know, uh, and I've had to go for hypnotism for smoking because I just do not have any control whatsoever in stopping. And if you said stop, I would want a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> but you smoke again? Um, yes, I smoke. So you're both dependent on something. No, well, I'm, I'm not anymore, by the way. Yeah. Now, of course, for a long time, people didn't think that smoking was a drug or didn't think it was addictive. I mean, that we now know it is. We now know that people do get withdrawal when they, when they stop. But smoking is probably on the sort of towards the least harmful end of, uh, of drugs. What would you say were the drugs that you really would be glad if no one ever, ever took again, the ones that are most harmful? I'd say smoking. Uh, that's the one thing I say to young people all the time is, don't smoke, please don't. I said I'd give up after five years, and here I am 30 years later still doing it. It's too easy to Because smoke. it's legal. Yeah. So you, it's, mm. you, it's, it's an, it, you, know, you can just go and buy your cigarettes. Yeah. I, I would say, just because of the work that I do now, I would have to say that it's the novel psychoactive substances mm. that are probably the worst. I think that we've, we've got a real ticking time bomb with um, mm. mental health, children, young people. We're talking about spice, are we here? Yeah, spice, yeah. And, and the others as well, yeah. Which are the ones you're thinking of particularly? We were talking monkey dust. Oh, the uh, strong cathinones, yeah. yeah. And then the, um, the cockroach killer, which I don't know what the name is, but that's kind of a, quite a new one in prison that they're finding um, because it just goes under the radar. They're, they're playing the cat and mouse game of it, but oh, I think... I've not heard of the cockroach. You don't know what, it, what kind of drug it is, is it? I, I do know, but I can't... I was trying to think of it before. It's roach spray. That's what it is. They spray that. Oh, on. I mean, it is a cockroach yeah, killer. Yeah, oh, yeah. sorry. It has it's a place. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They spray it on the paper and then it goes into prison. And what people do is they rip it, rip little bits off their, their letter. That's where it is. Okay. Well, since we don't know what that is, let's not talk about that. Well, let's talk about synthetic cannabinoids. I and mean, you've seen them emerge in the last. 10 years or so, less yeah. probably. Well, we knew, for, for us, because of the work we do is all peer-led sort of stuff, you get the kind of word on the street very quickly. And probably it was epidemic in about 2012 that it really become... It was before probably 2010, but epidemic in 2012, predominantly because of the they didn't have the drug testing uh, facilities to find people. So what you've got in policy is... They've introduced MDTs, mandatory drug testing in prison, in 2010. Cannabis is a drug of choice in prison. Then 2010, they introduced this policy that then had a spike in heroin use because heroin's out your system within mm. two days. For some of the listeners, they might not understand what, quite what you meant. So the thing about cannabis is if, you know, one spliff, you can have 
stuff present in your blood for weeks. Six weeks, I think. So you can eat or in your urine. So it's very easy to detect cannabis in prisoners. So what you're saying, cannabis, prisoners wised up and they realized that that they could, there were drugs which cleared out the system much faster, like heroin. So, so that was the first perverse effect. Testing for drugs meant that people move from cannabis, which is a relatively benign drug, to heroin, which can be a very dangerous drug. And people getting introduced to their habit, addiction, through prison because of the heroin. And then, then Spice come along a couple of years later, and because of its sort of PR or marketing towards cannabinoid, which is yeah. not, it goes on the receptors, but it's nothing to do with cannabis, that people's introduction was either to be spiked, which we talked about uh, earlier, is to be spiked thinking it's cannabis, and it's not. So they were given it or sold it as if it was cannabis yeah. and they found it was much stronger and yeah. possibly more addictive as well. Yeah, and then they, they put it in a pipe. They call it a rice attack. And, they, you know, they, you've seen the – well, I'm not sure if you've seen, but there's numerous YouTube videos of prisoners filming other prisoners under the after they've had this pipe, which they're convulsing on the floor yeah. and acting like zombies and stuff. And now they've just started to bring in a sort of testing – uh, facilities, which is, in my view, probably you can't prove. Uh, so people are being adjudicated through suspicion rather than actually mm. being caught using it. But needless to say, the system's creating this funnel where people are actually introduced to taking higher risk with their health, and I think that yeah. should be stopped. Well, I know with drug science has argued ever since it existed uh, that uh, these kind of policies to eliminate less harmful drugs like cannabis are actually all they do is drive people to invent and use more dangerous and more harmful drugs. And almost every drug policy in the last 10 years has made things worse as far as I could see. Absolutely. With the NPS, I started to notice notice it about five years ago. And in about a year, I saw the sheer volume of people who are now smoking it. When I spoke to medical professionals, they didn't know anything about it. And I ended up talking at a conference about it and saying to all these people if you don't know about it yet it's coming to your area and I ended up um, being commissioned to write an article for the British Medical Journal <laughs> because medical people didn't know anything mm. about it and I had to tell them yeah. what it was how to treat somebody who was on it mm. yeah no because there's also we, um, we're quite slow in this country in actually working out what's going on yeah. and also the, the the black market out there is pretty clever, mm. and they've got access to some some rather clever chemists and novel, you know, who invented these novel substances, which have never been tested in humans. So you've got this weird, bizarre situation that prisoners have become guinea pigs for completely novel compounds, which is, mm. I mean, you know, the worst of all possible worlds. Mm-hmm. But let's talk a bit more about prisoners, because one of the sad things that's happened in this country in the last 30 years is we've seen a big increase in the prison population. And a lot of that is driven by people... Uh, using drugs and getting convictions for drug use or drug dealing. and So it's filling up our prisons with people who probably shouldn't be there. W- would you agree with me? 100%, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the, the whole business with um, ecstasy pills, um, if you buy one, they were sort of originally they were about £10. If you bought 10, they were 70. So everybody chipped in and bought 10 between them. And there were so many people who got caught and said, I was just getting them for my friends. And the police went, full pelt at going after these people for dealing when they would never they, you know that's not dealing that's just the way the drug market works exactly it's it's about punishing people and making them sort of you know suffer somehow i think the argument might be well we're giving a message but the, but actually i'm not sure that prison gives a good message does it well you've got 
you've got this situation where prison's one place that the most vulnerable in society goes and the most criminal. They go into the same place. That's a bad combination, isn't it? Completely bad. And one thing that's added, and you, you mentioned it before, around smoking being the lesser of the harm. Well, they've banned smoking in pr- British prisons now. So the criminal fraternity, the markup on tobacco in Pentonville, which is not too far away from yeah. where we are now, is £400 an ounce. What? So you can buy it in the shop for 15 quid. And if you can get it through the gate, which most people could get in their pockets, and onto the wings, it can be worth up to £400 an ounce. But not only that, you've got chronic crack and heroin user, which we all know about, the revolving door group that go into prison. They go into prison, they don't get a cessation programme at all, so mm. they go cold turkey, and they meet the person selling the tobacco before they meet the cessation programme. Mm. So they're already in debt, and mm. violence, debt, bullying has spiked over the last number of years since they brought in this unintended consequence to poorly designed and implemented policy. is actually causing deaths. So last year, sorry, the last 12 months, Prison Inspector report, 55,000 recorded self-harm incidents in a population of 86,000 people. Uh, the highest number of deaths on record, highest number of ambulance call-outs of uh, yeah. spice-related. It's just insane. And it's all come from a, a philosophy, a political philosophy, which is that you've got to punish people for doing something like take drugs. And we've known that doesn't work <laughs> for a very long time. So what would your solutions be as, you, as, as experts? There was a guy in Norfolk. He was um, abseil, uh, no, parascending on a parachute. And he um, landed on a roof, hit a chimney. And before he hit the ground, people were calling for tighter regulations. Let's make this safe. Now, jumping out of a plane with a piece of cloth above you could be seen by some people as just as stupid as taking drugs. But we never do anything to make it safer for people to take drugs. They're going to take them. Mm. You have to get used to that fact. You're not going to stop them. So let's make it safer for them, just the same as we do it with everything else. I think we've got to look to decriminalisation across the board. I think it's probably coming. It feels like it does. I, I work with a drugs monitoring board in Europe, in Portugal, mm-hmm. um, which has been some interesting stuff coming out there. And then I've done some work with my charity with uh, the Health and Justice Select Committee, who are also going over there to visit. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interest in that decriminalisation agenda. The, the worst thing about it is in prison, it kind of doesn't... Uh, catch up with any rational thought at all so one of the leaders of the criminal justice when we wrote the report to spice the bird killer they said you know what do we do about drugs in prison so well, you're not going to want to hear it they said what said well stop mandatory drug testing but they it said, wasn't well no so well, you're not going to stop <laughs> this harm and ambulance call outs and death drug science had a presentation a few years ago by the the, the head of the um, prison governors association and he said this was the worst piece of legislation they did not want it it was forced upon them by politicians who like the idea that people get punished even more if they're in prison. Yep. And it's created havoc in prisons. And they can't even implement it. That's the thing, is they don't have enough staff to actually implement. So often it's done on suspicion. Yeah, which is worst of all, really, isn't it? And it's also corrupted prison staff because some of the prison officers now have become mules, haven't they, getting the drugs in because these super strong drugs like Spice You've got a perfect environment of a, an entry-level prison guard being on 23 grand a year yeah. watching a criminal on a wing making £10,000 a month. 
So that's if that, and then you've got tobacco with a markup of fifteen quid. That's it's a customer, a client group that will pay four hundred pound. It's perfect, and it's this, this, it's through the belligerent denial mm-hmm. um, that drugs exist in prison, and that we can't look at harm reduction and accept. You know, mm-hmm. like that. Basically, we need to look at people taking sort of healthier choices and less risk with their health. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, where do you stand on on treatments for addiction? Did you ever try any? Yeah. Other than just being abstinent? I was on naltrexone. Uh-huh. I think I've done loads. Anti-abuse uh, back in the day. Um, or for your alcohol? Yeah, when I first went into treatment, oh, I can't remember the first detox, but I was in rehab in 1988. And um, they said addiction was a learned behaviour and you could unlearn it. And it was run by dodgy social workers, who were my favourite people because you could manipulate them and stuff. Uh, they didn't know nothing about addiction. And uh, they let you have girlfriends and all this sort of stuff. It was weird. But um, and needless to say, I thought that that was the answer to drug addiction and there was no answer for someone like me. Because when you're sick, oh, you it think... it didn't work, so you thought you were untreated. When, you, when you're so ill, you think you're evil. Yeah, because mm. everyone's saying you're the devil incarnate. You know, you meet in relationships and you're robbing off everybody and everybody hates you. You, you actually think you're a really bad person and not sick. Mm. So it wasn't until 2000 that really the message come to say like you know this is a, an abstinence based program and it's honesty is the, the prerequisite to um, changing your life you know and then it's like what honesty what's that because I've grown up with this moral confusion of don't answer the door because if you do it's the rent collector <laughs> and you'll be in trouble you know what I mean this where right's wrong and wrong's right you know it's quite an interesting but yeah nothing sort of worked other than being I always say that a sense of isolation, so confinement in that early stage. Did you go to groups? Did you go to group therapy? Yeah, yeah. I went to rehab, yeah. And they sent me to Bognor Regis. The only thing you can do in Bognor Some people will say that was punishment. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Die of old age or get clean. <laughs> yeah. What is your, in your experience, all these, the people you know who've struggled with drugs, what, what have you seen as the sort of ways out for them? Basically, I think there's two ways out of drug addiction. You either treat the problem the pain, the original yeah. pain that, you know, that made people mm. try and mask it. Or you just have to wait until the addiction causes more pain than mm. the original problem. Yeah. And I've seen people, after 10 years, just get to that stage where they just literally drop, stop, because they've just realised that, hold on a minute, I could deal with that and it would be a lot easier than living with this. Mm. What advice would either of you give to, to families of people who've got drug problems? Is there a... Any easy way to intervene? What, what, obviously, some families are scared. They don't, you know, they don't want to make things worse. They don't want to mm. have arguments which could escalate out of control. I would say with younger people, don't make too much of a fuss if you find that your son is, or daughter is using a bit of cannabis or something. Mm. Educate yourself. Find out what it is, why it is, because drugs are the first stop on the train to rebellion. So the, the stricter you are with your children the more likely they are to go and find something else. And when you find that they are using drugs, a massive overreaction will not help the situation. In fact, it's more likely. Like I said, Nancy Reagan telling me, don't do drugs, they're bad, just made me more curious. Um, And I think the same with parents. If you go over the top, you're just going to drive them to something else. Mm. Yeah, it can be very... I've come across parents who've taken their children to the police because they found a bit of cannabis on them, which seems to me... 
probably the, the worst daftest thing daftest you could thing. do. <laughs> I, I was saying to, I get a lot of like um, correspondence or letters and stuff from very distraught like mothers and families and stuff who are at the end of their tether, and I always sort of say that um, to look after yourself, to look at you. And know that actually that you're not the best person to help them. Like you know, Ian just said that is that you can't help. Re- if you can't help, don't make it worse. Exactly, yeah. friends and family are mm-hmm. kind of not. Even with my own siblings, I was very tough. Actually, acted like I didn't give a didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, and just and uh, got one into treatment. My mm-hmm. son is the same. And I sat him down and I armed him with the facts about mm-hmm. where he's going. Mm-hmm. And if he does, that I'm out because I could no longer mm-hmm. help him. And I think that's the mo- the toughest thing mm. that a parent would have to do is detach yeah. from th- from them. So I've got a, a bit of a, a advice here. It's a it's it's a special recommendation from Drug Science because there's a book that I wrote called Drugs Without the Hot Air, which has got a chapter in about parents and kids and drugs. And the good thing is, if you get that and you get your kids to read it, some of the profits, well, all the profit actually, the little there is, comes to support drug science. So that's a very good way of uh, accessing something that you can use to, to talk to your, your children about. So we have some questions from Twitter now. So Carmen from Bath says, you hear people say things like, I have an addictive personality. Is there any truth to that statement? And if so, what is the reason for it? So I guess uh, you <laughs> would probably say you have a... A vulnerability, yeah, an addictive mm. personality, yes. 100%. Yeah. And if you're not addicted to drugs, you're addicted to other things like cleaning or work yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And the answer, the answer, Carmen, is that there are personality traits which do predispose to addiction, and they are, uh, there are different ones. So sometimes it's being very enthusiastic about things, sometimes it's being very anxious, sometimes it's being very impulsive. So there are different personality traits which uh, make you vulnerable. To, to using drugs or getting addicted to drugs. So Luke from Bristol. I've had a crack addiction for almost six years. I don't think it's had that much of a negative effect on my life as I can afford it. I've tried rehab twice and it hasn't worked. So at this point, I've just accepted this as part of my life, which seems better than the alternative. I got a steady job and girlfriend, so I avoid a lot of the outside problems that come with crack addiction. Do you think it's actually that bad for you when taken in that context? Well, that's definitely one for you, Ian. Um, yes, it's always going to be bad for you. Um, there are, as I said, there are plenty of people around the world who manage their addictions and even disguise and hide their addictions to, from their family and friends. But it's still an addiction that you need to deal with. Yeah, and, and crack itself is uh, going to have a rather negative impact on your heart over the time. Yeah, exactly that. A similar one, down from London. What do you think of the long-term health implications of taking one or two grams of Coke most weekends? And would you consider always needing Coke at weekends as an addiction? Well, I would have said yes, probably. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting, it's not lost control. It's not taking it every day. You don't have to take something every day to be addicted. That's a really yeah. important because, point. Absolutely. Because during the week, all he's thinking about is yeah, the weekend. Exactly. <laughs> so that shows yeah. that he's actually absolutely. very likely addicted. The, the, the other thing I'd add is, is about quality of life as well. And also time and circumstance. So some people, you could be in control for a very long time and an event will happen or some, some sort of uh, psychological change. And then I've heard many stories over the years of people literally entering their addiction there. Yeah, yeah no, you, it's, uh, there's no question it will be affecting your brain. And probably when you think you've still got it under control, you probably haven't. Mm. And then you mm. can slip out away from you very fast. 
Ellie, I'd love to know more about what happens to brain patterns, neural pathways with addiction. When you end up in a pattern, is it actually reversible or not? There seems to be a lot of conflicting literature. Well, that's actually a really interesting and challenging question, and it's the subject of a, a lot of my research at present. It's unquestionable that there are changes in the brains of people who are addicted, but not in everyone. And uh, what we don't yet know is whether these changes are reversible. And I think for some people they probably will be, and, uh, and for some people they won't. Mark, would you agree with that? I think I have to be honest, and I think that I lead a spiritual life not a religious one, hard, but a spiritual one. And I think it often gets missed in this whole discussion mm. around uh, mm. drugs and stuff. And there's a part of that breaking that sort of cycle and then continuing this change of um, letting go of my self-will and going through a bit of a process where I acknowledge that I've got its self-will run riot that's developed this pattern. Yeah. And I have to let go of that will and then I have to put things in place which often consider, um, as I said to you, about being very accurately focused on my behaviour and owning it to other people as well mm. and saying, this is what I've been thinking, it, it, like cleaning house. Mm. I think the religious monks or orders or whatever they used to call confession is an ancient art form. Mm-hmm. And it's through that confession mm. that I've got I've had freedom. You get insight. Yeah, and so that's the thing that I've found that winds that back you know, we will stop that psychological process. I've always, I've always found that um, people who are addicted don't tend to have much pleasure in their life. The drugs are the pleasure. Yeah. And as people get further along the addiction line, they start to realise, as a human being, they, they are valuable, that they have got things that, you know, people like. And you, that when they start to realise the pleasures of having friends, having relationships, you sort of see that that's actually far more enjoyable and more addictive than um, than the drugs quite often. And I guess that's quite a key part of rehab, isn't it? To try to get you to discover that there are pleasures and reinforcers Love in yourself. life. Yeah, and, yeah. A, and other people properly, yeah, yeah. rather than yeah. just the drugs. Um, Carl, is there a correlation between successful rehab in offenders and the chances of reoffending? It's that time of teachable moment. We were talking about it earlier, about the harm reduction thing of um, giving people methadone and, uh, yep. you know, literally I call it like elongating the ledge of like meeting yourself. You know, back in the day when I first started using, mm-hmm. I went to prison and you literally go cold turkey, there's no service whatsoever around it and it never killed me and actually I want to ask you a question right. around known recorded deaths to opiate withdrawal mm-hmm. because I'm aware of an astronomical amount of deaths that are associated with methadone and cross addictions like barbiturates and stuff, but I've never been able to find through my own bit of research that the deaths occur to opium withdrawal. Oh, opiate withdrawal, I mean, it's very unpleasant, but it generally doesn't kill you. But I think you misunderstand part that methadone was largely developed and rolled out not to treat heroin addiction, but to stop HIV. It was okay. to stop people injecting. Got and it. that's where it was really successful because it, it, that plus needle exchange and you know, clean paraphernalia has a huge impact to reduce intravenous injection. And that was, that was the main goal of it. Okay. Yeah, I always thought it was a lot to do with crime figures. Yeah, I thought that. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought, to yeah. reduce crime rather than to actually help the addicts because they make them come in every day and get drug tested and they, they counsel them every day. Um, and 
the truth about methadone is, you know, it doesn't stop people becoming heroics. Quite often, it doubles the addiction. But it does stop crime. Yeah, mm. it, does it does stop, stop crime. crime. Exactly. <laughs> it reduced, that's, that's what it was about. It was yeah, about reducing so shoplifting and yeah. petty crime. I think the point the point we make is that the thing that's that you've called it harm reduction. Yes. I agree with harm reduction is to keep somebody safe. But what, what's really interesting is through that process, the overuse of these drugs and the lack of understanding about what the original purpose was meant for and using it as a tool to actually get somebody off it and into some sort of successful yeah. living is actually by parking people on it, we're, we're giving them a really slow death. Yeah, but although, you know, there are a lot of people who don't want to come off. Mm. I mean, it is, there's a sort of paradoxical thing. You know, it's not, mm. not everyone... I mean, maybe they aspire to be like you, but a lot of, a lot of them perhaps feel they just don't have the from strength a, of courage. But from a societal level, so if drugs are illegal and your behaviour causes harm and victims, whether you're ill or not, and, you know, you're, you're actually... Everybody's accountable for their behaviour. Mm-hmm. I, I would question whether responsible, because you have to know the difference to be responsible. Yeah. But everybody's accountable. And so if it's illegal, then surely we shouldn't be to focus on if a substance doesn't kill you and isn't known to cause death, we shouldn't be doing, be giving the long, drawn-out green liquid uh, to people or retoxing people. That's well, a, one yeah. of the things as well in prison is giving methadone to people who are already clean because they're release, getting released from prison and don't want people to die. At what point well, I think is that's, the personal choice and what well, I think is society? It's always got to be personal choice, um, and, and, and absolutely... But I think these days now they're looking at naltrexone just prior yeah. to prison release because, of course, those couple of weeks when you first come out of prison, that's a very, very risky. In fact, yeah. it's the riskiest two weeks of your life. Yeah. Can I give you, just yeah. bringing it back to needle exchanges, yeah. the Bristol Drugs Project, which you're very aware of, I was one of the very first people to, to use that. Um, before, before the Bristol Drugs Project, there was, you had to go into Boots and buy a syringe and you got yeah. judged and sometimes got turned away. Yeah. And that's why people were sharing needles because you couldn't get them. Yeah. When the Bristol Drugs Project um, came about, they would, it was an exchange. You took in your old needles and they would give you new ones. Nowadays, it's not an exchange. Most places you just walk in, grab what you want, take it outside. And I find more needles lying around now than I ever did before. And I, I really do think the exchange part was the best bit about that. And to give you some idea of that, one of our friends had AIDS in 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know about that at first, but because we all had clean needles, mm-hmm. we didn't catch it. But we reckon without the Bristol Jokes Project, it could have been 17 of us. Yes. That it would have ended mm. up with HIV or AIDS. No, you're um, quite right. So, yeah. you know, Public protection. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say enough. And that's good also very important. Yeah, sensible drug policies, they do save lives. Yeah. And, and they also prevent the spread. Um, there are countries. Have you been to Portugal? Like, yeah. You've, you've seen, I mean, the, the Portuguese experiment's an amazing, amazing experiment, wasn't it? And it's so sad that it's not been endorsed but well you know you don't you know you've got proof of a policy which is humane rational saves lives saves money saves everything and we don't we don't do it you know um, when i was in portugal it's quite easy when you walk down the street here to see someone and judge that they're probably an addict that they, you know they look gray they look ill um in portugal 
it was hard to spot who was addicts. And I knew people um, who were working on beaches and things like that. I knew them for weeks and weeks and even months before I even knew they were heroin addicts because they were getting supported properly and they could just do it clean, safe. Um, Portugal's a brilliant example yeah. of how to do it. I think the most telling statistic that uh, I've seen on Portugal is it in the 15 years since they had their, uh, their policy of treating people rather than punishing people. Death rates from opiate overdose, heroin overdose, have gone down to a third of what they were 15 years ago. And in Britain, where we continue with our policies of punishing, so uh, they've gone up. They've mm. gone up by nearly, they've nearly doubled now. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's, that's atrocious when you think that we know we can do better. We know it's, it's, mm. it's not as if we don't know what to do. We do. We just mm. choose to ignore it. And it's, a, it's a very disappointing that our it's, a, it's all down to short duration politics. I think it's down to politics. I think we just we need one of the two major parties to actually say we'll do what's right for drugs. We won't use it for you know we won't make political capital out of being hard on drugs. We'll try mm. to be honest and truthful about what's right. And let's agree we won't compete to be harder on drugs. The problem with the public is, um, for example, you the lecture you gave. Do you remember the with the Budweiser bottle saying say no to drugs because yes. it gives you more time for alcohol. Um, <laughs> I found people were basically saying about you, why is he so anti-alcohol? Why is he? And I was like, no, he's not. He's just trying to make sure that you understand that, that these are all drugs. They're all, they've all caused problems. Um, and we can't just because something's legal and something isn't differentiate between them. Actually, I think that is a very good point at which to close this conversation. So thank you both. It's been really challenging, stimulating and very open. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, many thanks to Mark and Ian. You can find out how to keep up to date and get in touch with them in the show notes. This is it now. We're only two weeks away from our live show about psychedelics on November the 13th in London. Go to the Drug Science website, drugscience.org.uk, book your places, and I really look forward to seeing you there. And of course, in the meantime, don't forget to keep following me on Twitter, at Prof David Nutt. I look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you. A fascinating production for drug science.